Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained well, might Well, everybody, just be. coming in for a landing here for this week. Here's another one gone by. Thanks for joining us here. It's Rick Wagner here on KNZZ KGLN. We're 1100, 92.7, and 101.3, and a lot of other places on the Internet and, uh, well, on the Internet, the other Internet. You can listen on the Internet, and then you can also find my webpage and find a lot of this stuff on there, too, at the rickwagnershow.com. And I'd encourage you to go there because uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of stuff on there that uh, changes a lot of which changes every day, sometimes during the day. But I hope you had a good week. I hope you probably had a better week than uh, poor Donald Trump. I have to say, I have never seen the kind of legal decisions and maneuvering against a person, well, ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just not happening. I think the Rosenbergs got a, a, a fairer treatment in the, you know, from the courts than poor Donald Trump. A lot of you probably saw that they had a hearing with the judge to determine that Trump was uh, vastly inflating his net worth to secure loans for his businesses. And as such, that was fraud and that uh, they're going to pull his business licenses in the state of New York. Well, not everybody even knows what that means. <laughs> they well, they they know it means that the business license gets pulled, but what they what they don't know is how how that affects these things. What are you, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to go to receiver like you would a bankruptcy receiver? I mean, it's not bankruptcy, but some third party has to run it. Is it something sort of like a blind trust, like they supposedly put some of the uh, Congress people in? Which of course, <laughs> it's that's kind of a funny idea too, isn't it? Because certainly that isn't happening, but no one really can tell what they're supposed to do at this point. And I have to say, in looking through some of the material, and you guys have probably seen this, the the judge on his own decided to revalue all of the Trump assets and set a value on them. And if it was different than what Trump had said uh, when they were filing some of these paperwork, like to get loans and so forth, then that was fraud. And some of the things that he has valued are seriously undervalued. And many of you probably have seen that he valued Mar-a-Lago uh, down in Florida at 18 million. Well, I don't even have to be a real estate person to know that isn't right. I mean, if you just you just see people selling places that are 1 acre in some of those places for 16, 18, 20 million dollars, the realtors down there said they would list Mar-a-Lago at 300 million. So if that's the kind of figures that this judge is using, that's very sad. And I would be very curious to know exactly what expertise he had or what expertise he turned to to get these valuations, because I haven't seen anything. I have not seen any uh, indication of what he did or if he just sat in a rocking chair and picked uh, numbers out of the air. And, you know, I hate to identify people by physical characteristics, but if you saw a picture of this judge, he just looks kind of untidy and longer hair. I just he just sort of looks like the kind of guy that you would 
like walk into a Starbucks maybe in Portland, assuming you could get past the homeless people, and he'd be sitting in the back there with a uh, copy of the New York Times and a laptop where he'd be writing an angry letter about conservatives to the newspaper. Uh, that's kind of the image I get from him. The sad thing beyond that is that his lawyers, Trump's lawyers, asked for a stay. And usually you would get one in something like this to say, look, we have some appeals we're going to go through here that we think have value. And I would certainly think they do. So we want you to stay this order. In other words, until we've had a chance to go through the appellate courts, we don't want this to take effect. And that could take years, probably two years, I think, in New York uh, to get through all the appellate courts. And normally they would stay that and put it aside. You see it all the time uh, in these kinds of things. But no, uh, I think on Wednesday, Thursday, the appellate court said, no, we're not going to stay it and let it take effect, which is also unusual. What you can say about Donald Trump's legal issues is that everything that happens to him is unusual, which should raise a few red flags all over the place. Uh, not just about Donald Trump, but about what's happening in the justice system. I find it more and more chilling uh, every time I read about this stuff, the lengths they're willing to go to. I mean, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. I mean, that that's the more disturbing thing. Well, for instance, there was a story out uh, this week. Let's see. Where is it here? Yeah, the education secretary, I think his name is Bona, something like that, for Biden, publicly was criticizing parents who are misbehaving ooh, and acting like they know what's right for t- for kids. How dare you act like you know what's right for your children? How many times have these guys said things like that? Remember what was going on two years ago when Youngkin got elected in Virginia? I mean, that, you know, a couple of people said this kind of thing, too. And people are always saying, well, they, they you know, they said the, you know, they said the soft part out loud or whatever. Well, I don't think that's the case anymore. I just don't think they don't care. I mean, beyond them thinking that, for me anyway, the thought that they no longer have to hide it, just say it, gives me a lot of thoughtful consideration as to how they think they can control everybody else. In other words, they don't think that people being upset is going to matter. Somehow they can uh, square that up, and so they can say what they want. So thinking that is bad enough, but just randomly saying it because you're not afraid to say it anymore is more troubling, in my opinion, anyway. I mean, I've never seen a cabinet like this where I don't believe there is a single person, and I've looked through some of them, uh, not just because you get some obscure ones like the Secretary of Commerce and, you know, uh, and I've yet to see one that seems even remotely qualified for the job and even one that seems to be doing the job. I mean, the more high-profile ones, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, yeah, he's doing a bang-up job, isn't he? Yes, it's difficult to tell who, what, what country he's the Secretary of State for because it doesn't seem to be us. And we have Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary, who's just done a kind of job that I, I thought he'd be doing a bad job and, uh, you know, it's much worse than I thought. So even some of these people, we got Pete Buttigieg in transportation, right? You know, guy can barely ride a bike. Uh, but all of them are wildly unqualified. Elizabeth Granholm in the Department of Energy. Remember, she's the one that took the, uh, the electric car, 
little trip, you know, and they couldn't find charging stations. And then the, somebody called the cops on them because they were blocking the charging station until she could get her car there to get it charged. <laughs> I mean, they're just incompetent, and they are, like many incompetent people, completely self-assured and convinced of their own superiority. This is a very interesting kind of psychological problem that many people who are the least competent imagine themselves to be the most competent. I don't know why that is. If you ever watch some of these uh, shows, these uh, in any reality show, uh, where someone says, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go in there and take this apart and do this and that, you know, this uh, sort of overweening confidence. How often does it actually work out that way? If you notice, most of the time, it works out exactly the opposite. Whatever they're opposing takes them apart. So there's, there's some kind of uh, mania there that a person who is perhaps they are inferior feeling, like Joe Biden, who has these crazy stories about himself, and almost all the stories about himself are somehow putting him as uh, some sort of heroic figure or uh, accomplished figure when they're wildly off base. And they're not exaggerations. They're just flat not true. And now this guy's been doing it for pretty much his whole career. And they blow, oh, that's just old Joe. No, that's old Joe. That's just Joe, period. And as Victor Davis Hansen likes to say, age doesn't change people as much as it reveals them. And we're just seeing more of what Joe really is like uh, at this point. And this is who he is. This is who he's always been. And uh, I do like Hansen's uh, description of him as a fabulist, you know, in that these are essentially fables he tells about themselves, himself, that he comes out uh, as some sort of, you know, like I said, a heroic figure or some weird way to identify with groups of people that he's at. Very strange and not very healthy. Okay, we're back. Enough about uh, old Joe's uh, terrible mental instability and his physical instability, too. I mean, how many stories do we see this week about his uh, crew trying to keep him from tumbling down someplace? He's already coming out of the luggage section of uh, Air Force One on that lower ladder, and he appears to be wearing uh, orthopedic shoes that uh, have perhaps magnetic attachments on them to try and keep him upright. But even that isn't working very well. But it, move on for that. For instance, here's a question. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Now, I'm not just asking that because I talk about it a lot. There is a uh, a meme, if you want to call it that. It was on TikTok and a few other things. So make the Chinese interested in it, I suppose. Where someone had asked their boyfriend, husband, you know, something what he was thinking about, and it was the Roman Empire. And so she started asking, well, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And he goes, well, I don't know, three or four times a week or something. <laughs> so a lot of people started asking their significant others, their husbands and boyfriends uh, on TikTok. They said, well, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And they got all these surprising answers where a lot of guys were like, oh, I don't know, you know, a couple times a week or, you know, um, a little bit more. And they were just like shocked because, of course, they don't think about the Roman Empire at all. Now, I was happy to see that because it doesn't make me feel so weird. Uh, I think about the Roman Empire every day. Some of the people even said that, too. And they started asking, well, why is that? And there are some reasons, I think, to it. One is that we have a, a picture in our mind of the Roman Empire as a powerful and sort of a masculine state. We think of the legions. We think of the cool armor, you know, the, the crested helms, the, the power, the organization of it. 
And then there's also the engineering. If you know a little bit about it, we've talked about it here, the incredible ability they had to build things, some of which we just now figured out, you know, some of their cement and stuff like that, and uh, that was lost. And their organizational ability. So if you know a little, even a little bit about it, it's fascinating to you, especially when you live in a world where all of those things seem to be going away or south or into some sort of pretzel kind of uh, configuration. I mean, the Romans, for instance, if you were in a Roman legion and you set up a camp, a marching camp or even a semi-permanent camp, you did the same thing. You stopped, you dug a trench around it, a ditch, usually six to seven feet deep. Every one of the legionnaires carried two uh, palisade pikes. They are, you know, to build a palisade, they're essentially stakes. And then once you built uh, your ditch on the side where you've been throwing the dirt is now higher, and you stick your palisades uh, stakes in there to make it hard to run through without having them stick in the middle of somebody. And then they would build whatever they could, given the time. Sometimes they'd even build a tower and a few things like that, and they'd lay their camp out in a very defensive situation. And they would set their camp up in exactly the same way in every legion, no matter where they were. So you knew where the uh, second century of the first cohort of the legion was going to be because that's where they were stationed in every single camp all the way across the empire. So you could walk in to a legion camp in the Rhine or on the Rhine and know right where everybody was, go right to where the command tent was, the Prince of him. Then you could go to Syria and walk into a camp, and it would be the same. That's the kind of organization they had, and they were way ahead of everybody in terms of organization and training and all kinds of stuff. So if you know a little bit about that, it does come to mind as an example, and when you live in a world that seems to be wildly disorganized, completely disordered, chaotic in many of these cities, uh, you start thinking about societies that have had things sort of figured out, and it makes you wonder what happens. And I'll call to this the other end of it, too, when the Western Empire just sort of crumbled down, and the very end there, there were so many parallels between what happened there and kind of what's happening in the United States, and frankly, has happened in a lot of great countries or empires, there's sort of very similarities about what comes at the end. And so that's probably why people think about that. But I thought it was very interesting. And I think that if you just have a little bit of knowledge about it, men find it attractive. And there's things that men seem to find more attractive. You know, it was more warlike, certainly more masculine. There was, you know, all of these tremendous structures and all this stuff. And I, it was pretty interesting. And we could do worse than think about the Roman Empire in terms of how to run some things. There were a lot of bad stuff about it, uh, no question. Uh, a lot of cruelty. There was too much slavery. There was, you know, a lot of greed that eventually, I think, brought them down. Uh, and some of the things were just mirrors of what's going on for us. Uh, one of them is our extremely low birth rate. This also happened to the Romans. It's happened to a couple other civilizations, too, is you get to this point where you're not replacing people in your cities or the empire or whatever, uh, especially the the people who are like the Romans or the Americans or something. <laughs> people like that 
who are in this society where there's a lot of luxury. Uh, nobody wants to spend time raising children now. Things are pretty good. They don't need to have a farm and three or four kids on it, you know, to help them work it. And everybody wants to have a good time, you know, go out in today's parlance, go out and, you know, make an Instagram video of yourself, uh, you know, cavorting around, whatever the case may be. And so people don't want the responsibility of children. And because of that, many of them stay childlike themselves for most of their life. But you begin to have this replacement cost where people are not able to replace the ones that are passing away. And there was a, an interesting, <laughs> this is an interesting story on Breitbart um, from a Washington University professor who said, AI girlfriends are ruining a generation of men. I thought I combined a couple of things, artificial intelligence and people who are, you know, not getting out and interacting in a way that uh, ends in marriage and children and a stable home. And what it says is that there's these AI programs out there now where people can create a girlfriend uh, that will talk to them and they can they can have a picture of them, you know, that's a, a representation, a simulation of a person that they can pick out the physical characteristics on. And that they're not like just the older chatbots where there was sort of just kind of cookie-cutter interactions. You know, they all had like 30 things they'd say back to you or whatever. Is these that are hooked into the AI now, they learn from reactions that the people that built them are giving them when they're talking to them. And they know what you want to hear, see, and, you know, and every time you come to them, they have that knowledge and they build upon it. So it said that 60% of young men, 18 to 30, are single compared to only 30% of women the same age. And one in five men report not having a single close friend. That number has quadrupled in the last 30 years. And the amount of social engagement with friends has dropped by 20 hours per month. And so a lot of these young men are essentially lonely, and they're turning to essentially the Internet and artificial intelligence and creating friends or girlfriends, um, and they're not having families. They're not producing marriages, they're not producing stable households, and they're not having any kids. You know, We've had 600,000 fewer births in 2023 than we did 15 years ago. And the country's bigger. You know, there's more population, uh, partly from immigration and so forth. So think about that. It says the number of children per woman has decreased by more than 50% in the last 60 years. And they point out, and I think this is an interesting point, because I think it's something many of you are probably thinking about, that means that Americans will not have enough people in the workforce and therefore won't be able to pay its bills. And here's something that they point out, too. In 2021, the U.S. spent more than $1.6 trillion on Medicare and Medicaid, with the number of Americans on Medicare expected to rise 50% by 2030 to more than 80 million people. But at the same time period, only 10 million more Americans are expected to join the workforce. So we're going to have 50% rise in you know, our Medicare Medicaid and a very small, relatively, increase in the workforce. So you put all those things together, it's not looking good for an economy. People aren't going to be working. They're not going to be earning money. They're not going to be paying money into the government so that they can pay to people who have retired. And that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. Pretty soon, there's not enough money coming in to do a lot of things. And when you have a country that has $33 trillion in debt, uh, that has uh, more debt 
than it has gross domestic product each year, you can't have a whole lot of that before you don't have a way to pay your bills. I mean, it's hard to imagine that it comes down to simply the number of people, but you have to have people working. And there's probably going to be some problems with that even, even if you had the people, because we are coming to where we're becoming more mechanized. A couple of reasons are for that. One, of course, is this rise of AI, you know, and where you can build machinery to do a lot of the work uh, because the machinery can now be directed by an artificial intelligence type computer or whatever you want to call it to do more complex tasks. And secondly is we are constantly raising the price of labor. I mean, look at this UAW strike. I mean, these, and there's a bunch of other people thinking of striking. I think I read that the uh, uh, hotel and culinary workers in Las Vegas are thinking of going on strike. Well, you just keep raising that, and pretty soon it accelerates the demand for artificial intelligence and mechanical ways to do jobs. That cuts down on the available jobs, and it also cuts down on people paying into individual retirement accounts and Medicare and Medicaid. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking around with us here. Third segment coming up, and I have a guest that we are hopefully will maintain communication with. I'm not sure if she's on the space station or in a car, but I think a car. And it's uh, I'm going to get her name right here. It's Lori Gimmelstein. She is one of the founders of the Colorado Parent Action Network. And I thought it would be a good time to talk about her. I mean, talk with her about, about the organization. Because you might guess, folks, that uh, their parents are kind of getting cut out of the loop here when it comes to the education. We did do a story, I might uh, remind everybody here today, on uh, the Secretary of Education for Joe Biden said that uh, parents are misbehaving and acting like they know what's right for kids. I would I would guess, Lori, that's sort of the kind of attitude that uh, you're fighting, right? Yeah, really, parents are, are being treated as barriers uh, to the state's access to our children. And um, we are not going to stand for it because it is the parents' right and responsibility to direct the upbringing and the education of their child. What kind of luck have you had with that? <laughs> I, well, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I, we're seeing the culture shift. You know, we uh, many parents across the state and nation, you know, started to really engage after uh, during 2020, 21, 22, and now, um, and you know, kind of started in this this place of controversial curricular school lessons that were were not quite what we expected our children to be learning in English and social studies, science, and math, and um, and different types of conversations and. Um, a lot of parents starting to see their child's character and morals and values change. Um, and so uh, in Cherry Creek School District, where we live and where I have two children uh, that are it, were in Cherry Creek, um, <clears throat> we started to see, and Jenny was 11, this is early 21, and she shared with us that her friend Stella was now going to be River and use he, his, him pronouns and use the boys' room and um at first, I mean, at first, I wasn't, you know, horrified or alarmed or anything. Right. Except I must have missed this email. And because um, that's something I'd want to talk to my daughter about. That's a big deal. Um, and, and not common in children. And uh, so I just said to Jenny, oh, that's really progressive of River's parents to ask the school to do a workshop. And she said, oh, no, Mommy. River goes home every day as a girl. His parents have no idea. Right. Yeah, well, I think so we're that, hearing that more and more. Yeah, and, and then our son had a, 
an English language arts assignment. Why is your favorite hobby racist? <laughs> Why is your favorite hobby racist? Yes, and he had to uh, write racist against people of color to get full credit. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was, where, that was uh, my I don't even sure I understand that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and uh, so it, in twenty, it, this was in twenty one, and he asked me for some assistance on this English assignment, and I went up and sat at his desk because this is back when you know we're only going to school twice a week with math, and they're home learning three times a week, right. and um, sat down and looked at that assignment, and I said to Chris, "You are you are going to get a nap on this paper before you lie," and his response to me was, "You don't understand, Mom. I have to think one way at home and another way at." And the reason he said that is because even though he knows that it's not racism and seeing that's a problem, that it's a socioeconomic issue, he's that kid that, that wants to get the best grades. Right, and so he knew the only way he was going to get that grade was to say It was that. skiing that he was writing about, right? Yes, he was, he was talking about um, anti-racism and skiing. He had built a, a charitable organization called Lyft uh, yeah. to combat racism in skiing and, and he had sentences in his in his draft that were absolutely activist driven in terms of you know segregation in skiing uh we need to make sure people of color can have access to the mountains it, it was just you know we had a lot of discussion he ultimately wrote the paper from a socioeconomic perspective and still got the a but we had during that time, we had access to the Google Classroom, which all the schools have now locked down from parents. Parents can't see what their kids can see. And uh, yeah. I downloaded all I downloaded all the the organizations that were created by his peers. Right. We had racism in ballet, racism in football, racism in basketball, racism in engineering, and it was all around racism against people of color. And um, and this was a this was a class assignment. This was an English class, English honors class assignment. Right. And what and what grade? And that was when he was in eighth grade. So he was 13 at the time. Oh, well, he has an awfully uh, mature outlook on things uh, for that age. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a, a good thing considering the topics. Right. And, you know, we we didn't realize uh, we had blind trust in our education, education system. My husband and I, we had the opportunity to move to Colorado in 2011. He was active duty airport. And we, we chose the Cherry Creek School District specifically for academic excellence. And we just thought we were in the best district ever. And, you know, we had great teachers. We really did. Our teachers, we, we love our teachers in Cherry Creek, but they're being forced to push narratives that are unethical because they're going to lose their job. And we have all the documentation that we've, we've done a lot of uh, CORA requests. So I'm not sure right. if your listeners are familiar with CORA, Colorado Open Records Act. It right. may, you might be more familiar with Freedom of Information Act. Right. Uh, it's just the Colorado version. So, yeah. And we got so much documentation of evidence of harm. You know, we have documentation of our office of what I'll just say is diversity, equity, and inclusion, because they've rebranded three times over the last three years, uh, you know, stating, you know, what the current situation was, what they were going to do about it, and why they were going to do it. And it's three columns, and it says what's currently happening is principals and teachers are not doing the work of the Office of Equity. And what they were going to do about it was they were going to assume performance evaluations over these teachers and principals so that they would be forced to do this work. And then they, the why was because we don't have power over them, we, we can't control this narrative. 
Right. So what they want to do is make it part of their evaluation process for the teachers and principals, right? Right. Right. And that, and they, I'm assuming what you're saying, the school district has uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, some sort of formal per- person or organization within the organization that's overseeing that, right? called the Office of Equity, Culture, and Community Engagement in Cherry Creek. And school districts across the state, we have 178 public school districts, um, and they all have that diversity, equity, inclusion offices. And they might have different names. They change all the time. And um, Yeah, because and people figure so out what they're doing, and then so they change correct, it. Again. Correct. And a good a friend of mine, Alvin Louie, who is the founder and president of an organization called Courage is a Habit, which is an excellent resource. For your listeners, courageisahabit.org. He has phenomenal information on social-emotional learning. Courageisahabit.org, right. Yeah, courageisahabit. What Alvin says, he he says it it perfectly. He says, they're using our vocabulary, but not our dictionary, and they're weaponizing our kindness. Well, yeah, I think that's a great, great way to put it. I mean, we're we're changing the meaning of of the language, and then we control the language Mm -hmm. that way. And then we, you know, control what, uh, what, what people think about words when they hear them. Correct. And so what our, what we're encouraging people to do is to stop speaking in labels and start communicating in sentences, describing what you mean. What do you mean, you know, when you say right wing extremist? What, what does that actually mean? Right? Because it, the Colorado Parent Advocacy Network is a, nonpartisan organization we see issues of education around academics safety and security uh school lesson transparency partnerships with parents as nonpartisan well i I think we can say that anything that is disagrees with the progressive agenda to any extent is a uh, radical right-wing organization right and so and that's really what we're trying to get down to right so you know when kyle park on Nine News Denver says, you know, the Colorado Parent Advocacy Network is a an LGBTQIA plus hate group. What does, what does that mean? Because well, we, we throw that word around. Members. We throw that word around a lot. You know, hate is a strong word, and we use it constantly. Hate is a very now. strong word, and you know what I challenge people to do is, is ask people, well, what what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Um, because that's where we need to get back so that we can unite our community again. You know, this, this language contamination, as Alvin calls it, has really divided us. And, and and it's understandable. You know, people think they're doing the right thing when they hear that there's a hate group. And, and But that's not true. And so what I always encourage. Yep. We're losing her there, I think. Oh, wait just a minute. I I think that what she was trying to say is so important. Oh, looks like uh, we will try this again and see if we can get her on here. Hi. Hi, sorry about that. I dropped off <laughs> That's for right. a moment. The list, the listeners uh, out there understand very well the uh, foibles of uh, our digital communication. <laughs> yeah, and what you're saying is important. That's why I wanted to wanted to get it on. And uh, well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And you know, just to kind of get back is, is you know, kind of the call to action is really start communicating again um, and and using descriptions, uh, speaking from a principal's perspective as opposed to just labels. Um, because the truth of the matter is the majority of our culture sees this as regressive and divisive, and we can come together and have healthy discussion and debate, and that's why we, we actually um, are focusing on school safety, um, because this is an issue that is concerning to everybody. We all want to ensure that our children 
have a safe learning environment to grow and thrive and learn. And so we, we need to be a part of that communication. And we just had the school safety summit on September 10th, where we brought together the voices of the victims and a solutions panel of experts with proven resources um, to provide. We, we kind of started this, this summit with around school shooting. Well, and so I can tell you what, in, what causes disruption uh, amongst uh, everybody, certainly students, and that is characterizing that everybody that disagrees with something is hating them, mm-hmm. and that the next step seems to be that people who disagree with them are somehow dangerous, and then the, the next step is that somehow, somehow you have to uh, lash out or fight back against that. Uh, it's this right. escalation of rhetoric uh, that pushes people towards, uh, you know, a higher degree of response than than is necessary or even desired. But uh, you, know, you keep telling people that their lives are at stake because uh, somebody on the other side just disagrees with one of their opinions uh, or something in their lifestyle, but has taken no action on it. It's a very dangerous thing to do. It is. It really is. We just recently had a, a great example of this uh, in the Cherry Creek School District. Um, <clears throat> there's, you know, many parents and taxpayers realize that pornography is available in our school libraries. And uh, there is this big cry right now that anybody that says, hey, we might, we should have maturity ratings, parent permission, that that's somehow book banning. So that's another example of rhetoric being deployed that that's not really representative of what's happening. So uh, we've asked multiple school districts to put maturity ratings on books that contain pornographic imagery um, or pornographic content or violent pornographic content, because we know pornography is harmful. And uh, we uh, have asked districts across the state to put these maturity ratings and permissions on, and, and we've been denied repeatedly. And uh, last week, the Lives of TikTok, which is a, a, a well-followed platform yeah, on think, social media. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it, and probably many of our listeners are, too, where uh, yeah. they just put up actual videos posted on TikTok uh, by progressives. Many of them, frighteningly enough, are seem to be elementary school teachers, these are the ones that I've seen, yeah. and uh, then she posts them on uh, on X now, formerly Twitter, right? Yeah. So she's she's on she's on X, and she they did a great job. They did, actually David uh, with with the TikTok wrote a Substack because they contacted Cherry Creek because we had the books Gender Queer and All Boys Aren't Blue available in the school library, <laughs> and. Um, and so, of course, we did all the necessary due diligence beforehand. We screen recorded everything. We had videos of us, you know, searching the online databases for the district library as well as, and this is really important for parents to understand, it's not just books that are hard books in the library. These are books that are on online resources, homework tools that the kids use to get um, information, and they lead to a, a variety of pornographic sites, and it's very alarming. We recently just did an ex broadcast we have a broadcast that we do once a month and uh, this past Wednesday we did a broadcast on pornography in school libraries and we brought in expert Dr. Robin Patterson uh, she's actually a recipient of award from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation to talk about these online resources and uh, we within three steps uh, we did we connected with our, our one of our local high schools jumped onto the library uh, went to the online resources and got immediately under social studies to an article called Playing with Race. And it was all about um, very inappropriate sexual content. And, um, and 
it was very alarming. Well, of, co- uh, of so, course, you know, have to realize that some of the people on the other side don't think any of that sexual contact is problematic. And, and, uh, and, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's the problem. Come, There's no agreement on any of this. Yeah, yeah and, and that's where we need to come to. So we're not asking to ban anything. What we're doing is saying, let's just make, let the parents make the decision, right? So if you want your child to have access to that, that's your parental duty, you know, and, and as long as it's not violating that child's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, it's not a form of sexual abuse or physical abuse, you know, those are all measures that we really have to remember exist that, you know, is there sexual abuse and sexual exploitation by showing children pornography? Um, but that's why we want just parent permission. That would be really easy, right? So well, your son, that, your that, son, it would be easy except to do that you would have to allow the parents to know what was available to the children. And and, and, and that's that's and not what they want them. to do. You no longer have access to those things. Then you have to ask yourself why. You know, what is the real reason? Because what we ended up doing was we reposted the content from lists of TikTok, and we just asked the question. We just said, you know, why are our kids allowed access to porn? And then that instantly turned into it was a hate crime. We incited violence. Absolutely not. We stand against violence. There should never be violence towards anybody. Well, that's and, that's um, the that's the immediate response. Is that right? Uh, and we've talked about this on the show, but you know, but the, you're unsafe the second anybody questions your ideas. Uh, so, and, and and it's just like asking them what they mean by hate. You have to ask them exactly how am I make you feeling unsafe? You know, right. or whatever derivation of that you come up with right exactly and um you know we the, the district came out cherry creek came out and they said no this is a lie those books aren't in our in our schools and you know all of this and you know we we know they are um they did remove the ebook and the um the audiobook from the content of the elementary libraries after this post went viral um, which is good, but it only happened because of the alarming number of people that were reaching out. And, you know, I, I don't agree with anybody threatening violence against anybody. That is unacceptable. You know, you no, it just it, it does just the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. Correct. And um, and we just need to make sure that there's accountability for that because we will not allow that to happen. We will stand with anybody whose rights have been violated. And so um, we just need to ensure transparency and accountability, right? That's that's what we're asking for, and we're not receiving that. And so because of that, because we're not getting what we're asking for and what we should be getting because we are the parents, we are the taxpayers, we are the people that employ these people. <laughs> remember um, when Remember when those kinds of things mattered? <laughs> it, seems, mm-hmm. it seems like it's so long ago now, doesn't it? Uh, right. You're no, no longer in control of that, and... Uh, the question I have when you were talking about some of the things in the library and this and that, and they wouldn't tell you about them, is is not why, but how. How do they stop parents from accessing the educational materials uh, available to the kids? And I, I exactly. think it's important to people to know who haven't been in school for a while that, in fact, a lot of the teaching materials are electronic. And so you can't even see if there's a book in your kid's uh, you know room when he's studying or something. It's all... You know, he accesses it on his iPad or whatever else, computer, whatever else the school has got, got it going on. That's so right. it's very difficult That's to right. find. 
Uh, and um, and it's very important, you know, because our children, they're surrounded by this content all day. It's all over their hallways and posters. Um, and we have to be able to ensure that parents know what types of questions to ask their kids because, you know, pronouns, uh, you know, different sexualities is all very normalized in the school. Safe teachers, safe spaces. That's something we really want to make sure that parents are aware of because a safe teacher, a safe space is determined by the person that's saying it's safe. And we had child sex crime investigator George Mama speak to the State Board of Education. He also spoke to the Jefferson County Board of Education that in his, his years and years and years of child sex crimes investigation and the thousands of cases that he's, he's investigated, it was always a safe adult that was well, I mean, that just goes back. You're not accusing anybody of that. You're just saying that no. you're saying that the fact that it's self-defined and you're not really know anything about it is not the best situation for anybody, right. really. Uh, well, apparently for them. I'll ask you one final question here, and that is, sure. why do you think that this agenda is so important to the schools? That's an excellent question. And uh in February, we, we were featured in the Epic Times, an article by Dan Berger. It really speaks to this. And quite honestly, uh, I see this as the dismantling of America. This is a shift to move away from our founding principles. Um, we're seeing the state take over control of, of multiple areas of our lives. And, uh, and it's, it's this slow boil. And uh, people are starting to expect that these entitlements are going to be in place. You know, the school is going to do everything. The parent is, is being removed. We were at a back-to-school night the other day and at an elementary school, and there was this big poster and a great big letter. It said, my family is great. And then in small letters, it read, at pointing out my, inac- my inadequacy. <laughs> and then there was a text-to-talk. Well, that, that's, a, that's empowering. Yeah, there was a text-to-talk button, uh, not button, number. And when you, when you entered that number to text to talk to a, a therapist, it asked the, the third question was, what is your gender identity? Yeah. Well, and I, this is targeted toward our five to nine year olds. Jeez. <laughs> well, the fact right? that the fact that they figured that they're going to, you know, five nine year old is going to be texting somebody like that and discussing that is, is a little alarming too. But, you know, we're coming up to the end here and I want to make sure that we get people, uh, the information they need if they want to, want to uh, get a little more information on your, uh, organization. Now that's the Colorado Parents. That's with an S. ColoradoParents.org would be the website. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. you can go there and get more information about this. And, uh, you know, just if nothing else, you just get empowered about what's going on. And whether you have children in school now or not, uh, it's affecting everything that comes around you. I mean, I think I read recently where one in four, uh, students or entering Colleges are trying to identify as some sort of pansexual, bisexual, whatever the case may be, and and we're seeing that in middle schools as well. Yeah, well, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna unfortunately get pulled out here. So thank you very much, well, thank Lori. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And again, just everybody, please uh, check out ColoradoParents.org and, and join the movement. Get involved. Thanks okay. so much, Rick. You bet. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. See you guys next week.